Testing, one, two, three. Hey guys, uh, so we're back. Um, you also find that Pastor uh, Micah shared a resource there in the group about the 10 plagues as we just went on now. So you can uh, yeah, feel free to download that PDF there on the WhatsApp group. Um, and yeah, um, we're back. Cool. Okay, so the plagues and then uh, after the death of the firstborn, so remember they had to to kill the Passover lamb, and that of course is a type of, of Christ. An innocent animal is put to death so that uh, God's people uh, would, would be delivered. Um, all those that didn't have blood on the, the door lintels, um, they lost the, their firstborn son. Um, and so, as I said at the beginning, that, that uh, what they, they did to the Israelites happened to the Egyptians. Um, and the Passover lamb becomes very important, that, that the, the feast of, that feast, Passover feast is very important. And of course, Christ is, is the ultimate Passover lamb. Um, he, he also initiates the communion at, at the Passover meal. And so it very clearly points to Christ. They then leave and they, they take the silver and gold. They go down towards the Red Sea, and then you know that Pharaoh hardens his heart, chases after them, but then the Lord intervenes, and there's a separation that takes place um, again between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It puts a wall of fire between them and darkness and light. Uh, I didn't mention also even in the plagues there was a separation, so like darkness would come upon Egypt, but not on the, the Goshen, where the Israelites were, they were in light. And so again, the language of separation is the language of creation. God is, is uh, creating a people for himself, redeeming a people for himself, uh, whom he even says uh, that Israel is his firstborn. Israel is my son. Uh, and, and so they are then delivered through the, through the, the, uh, the Red Sea, the Red Sea opens up, um, and they pass through. Uh, <clears throat> even in the uh, the uh, account of the the deliverance, there's there's reminders of creation because there's day and night. There's separation between the the waters separate and the land is revealed. Remember that's what happened at creation. So again, all these references back to to creation, and then the, the Egyptians are drowned in the in the Red Sea. And, um, and that's symbolic of baptism. So that um, the, the baptism speaks of the death of the old nature. And, and so the Egyptians are, are destroyed, but the Israelites are delivered um, through that. They then are in the wilderness and they get hungry and God gives them bread from heaven, manna. And he reinstitutes the Sabbath. That's the first thing the Lord gives them from the, the law is the Sabbath, the day of rest. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. There was no day of rest. And uh, God graciously gives them rest, which is exactly what Jesus says. Remember, all, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Um, so before he even, we even get to chapter 20 where he gives the Ten Commandments, he already gives them rest. Because rest was all the way from creation. God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day and he hallowed, he blessed the seventh day for rest. Okay, so, um, but the people that <coughs> Moses leads are a grumpy people. They're a, a complaining people. We're told that they, they grumble. They harden their hearts and so they get thirsty. Chapter 17 Verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Uh, the Hebrew word there, it's translated as quarrel, uh, literally means to sue. It's like a legal word. And so they're basically saying to Moses, you've brought us out here to die. You have not kept... You your word, um, which is really they're saying God has not kept his word. They're accusing God of being a covenant breaker. You, you said you would save us, and now you've just brought us out here. There's no water. We're just going to die in this wilderness. And um, we have quite a, an incredible account that, uh, of what happens. So Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, God would go to all those lengths to deliver them and then let them die. Um, we're the same, actually. No, we are. Yeah, yeah that's There's important. So many, so many parts of our lives we've been brought out of the we complain. So we must never read the Bible as, oh, I can't believe those people are so bad. It's, it's, uh, all these things are written for our instruction, the New Testament says. So uh, that's right. 17. Okay. So Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do? They are ready to stone me. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So this is remarkable. It's the only place where we are told that where God says, I will stand before you. We never find that in the Bible. We always find we stand before God. And so it's, again, it's legal language. We are the ones who stand before God. He judges us. Here the Lord says, okay, Moses, uh, I will stand before you by the rock, and then you must hit the rock. Obviously, hitting the rock and God is standing in front of it. Um, now, not, you know, I don't believe he was in any bodily form. But of course, the implication is who's been hit, that God has been struck. So they're accusing God of being a covenant breaker. He's not, but he takes the punishment as though he's a covenant breaker. Because remember what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. He says the rock that followed them in the wilderness was, was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. And so it's a picture here of Christ being struck 
not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. And then the rock gives water. So through the striking of the rock, water, life comes to the people. And so it's a power, incredible picture of the gospel. And it is interesting, John is the only one that tells us when they pierce Jesus' side, what does he mention? Water flowed out. Okay, And I think John is, is, is a, I think he is, John is full of Old Testament allusions. And I think he's, he's, he's referencing or, or thinking of this account. And so even here we see the character of God. When, you know, he should just wipe them all out. Like, what an what a ungodly bunch. <laughs> like, really. It's the same with um, Jesus on the boat in the storm. Maybe he's sleeping and the disciples. The Lord has told them what they're going to do. He's told them their whole life. And then they're like, we're going to drown. Like, really? I've just, you know, you, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be my disciples. You're going to do all these things. And do you really think that Jesus is going to drown there? We're all going to drown. It's a, that unbelief. Um, okay, so it's a beautiful account. Um, uh, chapter 18, we have the Jethro principle, just, uh, just briefly. So uh, Moses is inundated with dealing with all the problems of everyone. So Jethro says to him, and remember Jethro is not a believer. He's a Midianite priest. He's not an Israelite. Um, and yet he is able to give practical advice. Yes. Later on, yeah. Later on. Okay. So later on he strikes the rock in anger. And the Lord says, because of that, you won't enter the promised land. You will see it, but you won't enter. <clears throat> well, I think if, if the rock that followed them was Christ, and he struck it in anger, you know, it's, this was... What do you mean the rock followed them? I don't get that. You, you said it a few times. So, so let's read it, First Corinthians. Doesn't they come upon a rock every time, and then was the actual rock following the same rock? It's tells us it's Christ. So it's a, it's a, um, what can I tell you? It's a rock that followed them. That's what <laughs> I'm told. First Corinthians 10. Uh, we have to get through the, the, the material. So when we get to first Corinthians, but yeah, so the, 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 when they needed water, that rock would, um, yeah, that, that, that gave water. So, um, okay, so Jethro says, hey, what, you know, that's a waste of time. What you should do is set heads of, you know, 50 people and hundreds. So you deal with problems at that level. If it's bigger, it goes to the next level and bigger and bigger. If nobody can solve it, it goes to you. So it's called the Jethro principle, and it's, it's a good leadership principle of delegation. Otherwise, you'll burn out. Okay, so. No, no. Judges were, were were sort of kings. They were they were they led, but there would only be one judge. So there was still a judge at the top, but they were also deliverers as well. Um, okay, uh, they come to Mount Sinai, chapter ninety, and so that's the new section, Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments are given. Chapter twenty, the Ten Commandments are given, and. Um, uh, what we know about 
treaties and covenants in the ancient world is that uh, you would have what is called as suzerain vassal treaty. So suzerain uh, would be the, the great king who has now conquered this other territory and that becomes the vassal state. And the suzerain, we know from ancient Near Eastern treaties, is the suzerain would, the, the treaties would follow this normal structure. The suzerain would introduce himself, I am the great king from the east, I am the mighty warrior, deliverer, I'm the one who has conquered you and delivered you, whatever he has done, he's done something. He introduces himself and says what he has done. Then he will say, this is how you must obey me. These are my commands to you. You must pay me 10% of your income as a nation every month. You must um, send me 100 soldiers every year, etc., etc., etc. Then, if you do this, I will protect you and I will ensure that nobody else invades you and if anyone attacks you, I will come to your aid, etc., etc. If you do not do this, I will come in and destroy you and kill your women and children and destroy your cities, etc., etc. Very, the language is very um, flowery. Okay? <laughs> very... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you don't pay, yeah. So the, the, the Bible has the same, the covenants have the same structure. Um, and so, uh, and Meredith Klein has actually argued that the New Testament has that structure. So if you think of the, the structure of the, of the New Testament, it begins with the Gospels, which is the introduction of Jesus. This is who I am, and this is what I've done. I have delivered you by laying down my life. Then the epistles teach us how we are to live. And then also give us, Revelation sort of gives us blessings and curses. If you obey me, there's eternal life and a new heaven and new earth if you disobey. So I think there's something to that. But here, God is introducing himself in chapter 20. Very important, because when we come to the law, people have um, low views of, of the law, and that's not, that's not Christian. But it begins with verse 2. Chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it begins by the Lord saying, this is who I am, this is what I have done. Then it says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, etc. Then it goes into the Ten Commandments. But notice that it doesn't say, um... You shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc. If you keep all these commands, I will save you and deliver you. God says, I'm the one who's already saved you and delivered you. Live like this. It's never salvation by works. God has already saved them, and now he's giving them a law, a good law, a gracious law, because the law is good. Um, Paul says in Romans 7, the law is good. The law is spiritual. Uh, Psalm 1 the blessed man delights in the law of God. So we should be those who uh, are not antinomian, anti-law. Okay? Um, that's the sign of an, of an unbeliever, if we, if we hate the law of God. 
we don't like what he's remember it's it's love it's not there he's trying to ruin our lives and stop us from having fun he 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 made us and he says this is the way to true freedom um, but just notice that so the laws are given here and um uh, we don't have time to go through it now but when we we do deuteronomy we'll look at it the law in more detail um deuteronomy 5 has the law recorded as well then it goes on to give case studies case law so it, it unfolds sort of outworkings of the different commandments. Okay? So what we, what we say as we go through the scriptures with the law, and it, it's, very, it's a big topic, especially when we come to the New Testament, the relationship of the law to the New Testament believer. So th this is um, a position, not, not all... All theologians agree with this position, but it is a noble position. It's been held for centuries by many, and it's the one I think is the most biblical, is that the law, as we're talking about it here, is divided into three sections. The moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. So at this time, Israel is what we call a theocracy. It's not a democracy. It's not, you know, everyone has a say or a vote. Uh, it's not an autocracy. Uh, it's not a monarchy. It's a theocracy. It is under God. God is the one in charge. And so when God gives these commands, there is no distinction sort of between like church and state like we have. Because it's the people of God as a nation. So that's why there are civil laws, things like when you build a house, remember in much of the ancient world, or sorry, in the Middle Eastern world, houses are flat-topped. People often go and sleep on the roofs because it's so hot. And so the Lord said, if you, when you build a house, make sure you put a parapet around so people don't fall off. Okay? It's a civil law. It's just um, to protect life. Or if you um, if your ox gores someone because you, you left the gate open, then you know, you get, if that ox kills someone, then you're also going to get killed. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so God specifically spoke about what you just mentioned. Yeah. yeah. What does it feel like? like okay, it's more of a personal thing. Like I feel like a lot of things in the Bible, and maybe it's because... Um, me at least like we have somewhat of a relationship with God. Um but I feel like a lot of like these laws and stuff they just feel like common sense. Like I feel like they would know to like put like a safety thing around the Yeah, but remember the well, like, you know that you know that quote common sense isn't so common. No. Uh <laughs> and that's true. So so but yeah, you know, maybe in a sense. But there are other laws that are not so intuitive. Um, so some people have said this division is arbitrary and it's not really biblical. Uh, I would differ with that. First of all, you cannot argue that there is not a massive distinction between the Ten Commandments and the others. The Ten Commandments are written by the hand of God. Already that's a distinction. It's the only piece of the Bible that we have that God actually wrote himself okay um, twice yeah so 
so that already it's on on stone tablets and was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So already that to me is a huge distinction. Okay. Um, secondly, the ceremonial laws that was things to do with with worship and the temple or tabernacle and sacrifices. So uh, you know, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean, or these type of sacrifices. And we're going to look at that when we get to Leviticus uh, next week. Um, what we do find is several statements like this. To obey is better than sacrifice. To me, that's a distinction already. God rather wants people to obey his commands than to come with sacrifices. It makes a distinction. Rather do what I tell you to do than just come with all your sacrifices. And then the civil has to do with, with the running of the, the state. Okay. Yes. I don't know. Off, off the top of my head, I can't remember. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Well, I would say that he fulfills all of them. Yes, that's a clearer. Definitely, yeah. Okay, so um, as, as we go through, you find then explanations. There are sort of different um, uh, explanations of that. I'm jumping over certain things because Deuteronomy, like covenant blessings and cursings, when we get to Deuteronomy, that has a big section on that, and so we'll get to that. Um, okay, so um, this is called the Book of the Covenant, uh, this first part. And it is interesting that liturgy, or the, the, the worship, is not included in the Book of the Covenant. Um, it, is, it is a separate part, which tells us that um, obedience, again, is more important than, than worship. Okay. Now, don't make a huge distinction because God commands us to worship. But again, he doesn't, remember... Um, Matthew 15, quoting Isaiah, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So, you know, don't think you're being a good Christian because you go to church. Um, don't think you're being a good Christian if you're not going to church either, okay? That's because that God calls us to. Yeah, the thing that's going on is to say, you can't, you can't be lying and stealing and lusting and hating the whole week and then come to church. He's saying, the Lord is saying, this is, this is what I want and then, then come and worship me. Okay. So, um, um, okay. Uh, then there's, um, we get into the, the, the tabernacle. Descriptions of the, the tabernacle um, from chapter 25, and it's very detailed. So you can see that um, there's the Ark of the Covenant is to go there. So now we're getting into the liturgy, the, the, the worship, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, um, the bronze altar, um, and we'll look at those things in future sessions. But then we come to the priest's garments and 
If you've read through Exodus, so I'm, I'm going through the audio book of the Bible for this series. And uh, as you go through these sections, it is remarkable the amount of detail God gives. He tells them how many curtain rings it's to have, the length. Very, very detailed and very specific and very beautiful. The colors of the priest's garments and all of that. So you say, well, what's that got to do with us today? Well, one thing it tells us is that God is very takes his worship seriously. You know, he didn't say, guys, just build me a whatever you think is nice. You know, he has, he has the details for the tabernacle, just stick it, make a nice tent. He gives very specific details on everything, the materials that are to be used. And so the application for us is also today, God takes worship very seriously because he's God. He tells us how we are to worship him. So, um, we, we come the way that he tells us to come. Um, we come the way that he tells us, or we do what he tells us to do. And so we call that the regula regulative principle of, of worship, that the scriptures regulate our worship. We cannot add things that the scripture does not uh, tell us to add. So um, uh, we don't have... You know, the Lord's Day service is not a concert. It's not a play. It's not a puppet show. It's not, I don't know, a dance-off or something. <laughs> All sorts of things. It's not to say that those things are wrong or sinful. Just go the other days of the week for those things. Okay, But the actual service, we are told certain things are required. And we won't go into that today, but... It, it just, the idea is God takes his worship seriously. The other thing is that the priests are really beautiful. The clothing and the purity and, the, and that represents holiness and the beauty of holiness. Okay, so chapter 31, just quickly. Uh, we are these guys are mentioned, Aholiab and Bezalel. And... Verse 3 says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones, etc. So these two guys are gifted craftsmen. They can work with these materials and make beautiful things by the Spirit of God. So this is very important, I think, for Christians, because Christians often... Can, can be guilty of withdrawing into like, like a ghetto mentality. What, if someone can do something amazing or is gifted, that is the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm not saying that a person has to be saved, but everything, every good gift comes from God. Any good ability is by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's not as though unbelievers just live by themselves or, you know, and, and the only reason anyone is alive is because of God and God keeps them alive. And God gives people ability. That's how we can enjoy um, music from an unbeliever. If it is good music, that's the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know. I don't know if Messi is a Christian. I don't know. <laughs> but as Christians, we can rejoice when we see Messi do something. That is, you know, we say, "Well, that's." We can praise the Lord to say, that's incredible. That is the gift. That's the Holy Spirit working in that situation. When there's beautiful architecture or art or literature, um, 
we can we can see God at work in in unbelievers. Okay, so that's just something to to think about. We Christians are the only ones who can properly and truly enjoy the things of the world because we don't make it ultimate. We don't worship Messi or the soccer team or a musician or something. We see it as pointing to God and God's greatness. Yes. So the Holy Spirit and soul work to someone who hasn't accepted Definitely. Definitely. I, otherwise, people are not like, remember, everyone's dependent. It's not as though they live independent of God. Yeah. The only way they take a breath is by the Holy Spirit. The only way they do. Uh, so, okay. so whatever gifts and abilities a person has is because they're made in the image of God. And yeah, well, no, he's he's it's it's okay. he's working. Um, so, but it does not mean they're saved. Okay. Mm, okay. Yeah, okay. they're not regenerated. They don't have a new nature. They don't love God. But we are the ones who then can truly. Appreciate. So is it the same of like, uh, as like looking into like a precipice or like a Grand Canyon or something visually beautiful? Obviously, that mountain uh, isn't an individual necessarily made in the image of God, but it's the same sort of relationship. Yes, yes, because you're seeing something of God, okay. definitely. So I think John Piper says, you know, he he likes watching gymnastics, but he says like if you're at the Olympics and someone, you know, on the board, or well, not the board, was it called the no, the just the flat, no, just the flat ground, just the flat ground, whatever it's called. <laughs> Where they go from corner to corner and they they run and do like triple somersaults and then they, and he says, he says when you see that, he says the only the only response is one of worship. It's the language, people. That's why people start to speak almost in spiritual terms when they see something incredible. They'll say that's transcendent or that's he says, you, you want to say hallelujah, like that's incredible and that's right. Even that, that, that gymnast might be a total pagan who's, you know, living a horrible life. But we can glorify God because that is God's grace and God's abilities. Um, and so that's how we can enjoy things without worshipping them. We see them as a means to point us to God. I don't know, I, I, I just, I'm trying to understand. So... Is it not that God will implant a talent into somebody because obviously they need to live there? Or are you saying when, like, for instance, like they're now doing a thing, or like they're doing this great talent, is the Holy Spirit working in them then? Or is it just that when they were born, that they were born with talents and then that's what it No, I think it's a continuous thing because we can't, we mustn't, we must remember that there can be, no one can do anything without God. So it's not as though God just, winds people up and lets them go but um you know the mechanism i'm not you know i don't i don't fully understand but i i, I do believe it's right for us to praise god for when we see god's grace in 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 unbelievers or in any sphere of life um, and you'll see it makes life a lot richer because often christians feel bad like i really enjoy soccer but not, you know, or or i really like cinematography or i like mm. music and then we feel bad instead of saying let's now i'm not talking about sinful or vulgar or crass but if it's you know beautiful and true and good even if it's an unbeliever we can we can praise god because it's god mm. we're made in the image of god okay <clears throat> unfortunately 
um, they, they, they disobey the Lord, chapter 32, the golden calf, and they, they start worshipping the golden calves, saying that this is the, the God who, this is the Lord, they, they say this is the Lord who, who brought you out of Egypt. They use God's covenant name. So they're, they're mixing their, what, what the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. And um, God is angry, and uh, he threatens to destroy them. He says to Moses, it's quite something how the Lord tests Moses. He said, let me wipe them out, and I'll start a new people with you. And you can imagine how tempting that would have been for a, you know, in the carnal nature. Like they would be called you know, the children of Moses, would be his people. And he says, no, no, don't, don't do that. You know, even rather blot my name out. It's quite remarkable. Moses and Paul, they're both willing to, to be cursed so others can be saved. But he goes down and Aaron, Aaron <laughs> says, what's happening? Aaron says, no, the people uh, gave me this gold and, and we just threw it into the fire and out popped these golden calves. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Adam, you know, the people, and it's somebody else's fault, and it just happened. But it, it got really bad because it wasn't just, the Bible says that they rose up to play, which, which is a euphemism for sexual, uh, sexual an orgy. So they, they began to worship these, these false gods and entered into sexual immorality. Now remember that sexual immorality is, was a staple of pagan religions. Um, it was a view that that's how you communicated with God. Um, with their gods. That's why they were always temple prostitutes. It was, it was seen as um, how you would communicate with the gods. But that, you know, then you can always tell that a man invented that religion. Okay? Yeah. Uh, you can always tell you know, when a man invents a religion, it's got sex in it somewhere. Okay? Um, so uh, you, can, you can think of other religions. But... Um, Christianity is not like that. Um, that's not our hope in paradise or in new heaven on your earth. It uh, transcend, transcends that. Uh, but we will look at the purpose of sex when we get to Corinthians and uh, uh, God's view of that. Okay, so unfortunately they disobey, but... Um, uh, and God judges them. Then Moses says he wants to see God's glory. In, and uh, the Lord says to him, Look, I'll let, I'll let my goodness pass before you. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, thousands of generations. That's the idea there. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This, again, is, is, is the high point of the Old Testament, of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God, because he is the exact imprint, the exact image of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. But before the incarnation, 
if you want it in summation of what God is like, this is the place where he, he tells us what he is like. And this, is a, this passage is what the prophets refer back to over and over again, especially in terms of times of crisis. When God says, this is who I am. And so this is who God is. God is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Literally in the Hebrew, it's an idiom. It means long-nosed. Okay? He says, I have a long nose. So what that means is, the idea is like, you know, we say, uh, you know, when people, two guys want to fight, you just like, calm down, calm down, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. That's the idea. Because I've got a long nose, I have big nostrils, which means I can take a deep breath. <laughs> that's the idea here. It's a very, very clever idiom. God is saying, that's what I'm like. I can take a deep breath. Otherwise, of course, he would have wiped out humanity a long time ago. But he says, I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, the idea here is loyalty. It's, it's, it's that God will never turn his back on his people. He will never stop loving his people. His love is steadfast. So I can say this, don't misunderstand it, but I can say it doesn't matter what you do. If he has chosen you, he will love you and never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's not a license to go and sin, but I can tell you that and we can go to the scriptures and see all the examples. Uh, and in our own lives, we can see it as well. So he is stead he is loyal. He's not like... Um, you know, those Arsenal fans that all became Chelsea fans and then Man City fans and now they're back at Arsenal. He's like a Liverpool fan, like they just stay there. <laughs> so, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's steadfast. Slow to anger, bounding steadfast and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Because it's going to tell us that he also judges and he also deals with sin. So, He's also righteous. But notice the contrast to the third and the fourth generation. The contrast is, I show mercy to a thousand generations. I judge to the third and the fourth generation. Okay? So there's a massive contrast. And so this is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Even for us, meditate on this. This is the character of God. Okay? God is a gracious God. <clears throat> okay. Um, Thirty-four. Okay, so the rest of Exodus is is again making stuff for the temple, and um, then the glory of the Lord. Right at the end, chapter forty comes down, and um, verse thirty-four of chapter forty. Then the Lord, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Okay, and so... Um, the mention of day and night, again, reminds us of Genesis 1, reminds us of paradise. 
reminds us of God's presence. Uh, God is now present with his people. But that creates problems. How is a holy God going to live with, in the middle of sinful people? And so we're going to learn about, okay, <laughs> how is this going to work? Why? What is going to stop God? He even says, what is, unless I break out and, and destroy you. Because he's holy. And so what is he, what's going to come into place is the ceremonial law to deal with, our, with man's sin or Israel's sin. Yes. So the source, can I say bad that the Israelites are showing, is it still not as worse as how the humans were before So basically my question is how bad was it that God had to like basically wipe everyone out? Okay. So like it can't be worse. I mean it can't be like yeah. 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 I think that's. No, no. I think that's right. I think that when sin, what we see in the scriptures is when sin reaches a certain level, God intervenes, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Um, the Canaanites. <laughs> um. The, the, the Canaanites with what was going on, and then 